0: You're listening to the Franchise Freedom Podcast with Giuseppe Grammatico.
1: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Franchise Freedom Podcast. I'm your host, Giuseppe Gramatico, your franchise guide. And today we have our first ever repeat guest, David C. Barnett. David, welcome to the show. Hey, Giuseppe. How are you doing? I'm, I'm happy that you invited
2: me back. I guess I didn't say anything too awkward or embarrassing last time.
1: Yes. No, actually, yeah, we... <laughs> We got some really good feedback. I uh, I'll be honest. Everyone listening, and I I learned a ton from our conversation. And uh, for everyone listening, and David is now my go-to guy for you know how do I sell my business? What's the exit strategy? Uh, instead of um, trying to answer those difficult questions, I refer them right over to David. And, and today, um, changing the format a little bit, want to talk about uh, exit strategies. And uh, I am going to send this uh, this episode out to anyone that has any questions. About exit strategies because that is a very popular topic and it could, it could get complicated. There's a lot of it depends and what industry you're in. So, uh, so I want to I want to take a, a really quick uh, deep dive. So before we get into that, um, so the format as I mentioned is going to be a little bit different. Uh, David, can you fill us in just a little bit on your on your background and then we'll we'll start diving into uh, exit strategies.
2: Yeah, sure. So um, you know, out of university, I got into sales and eventually left that and started my own business didn't like that business after a little while, and I sold it. And that was the first introduction to the world of buying and selling businesses. I then ended up being a finance broker for small, medium-sized businesses, helping people get loans and things for equipment and buildings and everything to grow their businesses. And then the financial crisis came, and I ended up pivoting into business brokerage, ran a business brokerage for three years. That's a terrible business because your cash flow is up and down. You you only get really get paid when you make a sale. And after about three and a half years of that, I realized I needed something more regular, became a banker for a while. And just like um, you know that what, what's that famous scene from "Is it Scarface?" You know, they kept pulling me in or, or yeah, yeah, gangster movies. <laughs> and so my phone just kept ringing from people looking for help to buy and sell businesses, and I ended up re-entering the world of buying and selling businesses as a consultant and coach where I help people through the process. I'm not a broker but I just work with my buyers and sellers, helping them get through the deal, helping them navigate things. Mm -hmm. And along the way, I've written some books, I've got a YouTube channel. And so basically, you know, I've been working with small and medium sized businesses for over 20 years now,
1: and particularly in the world of buying and selling them for over a dozen years. Wow. So you've done a little bit of everything you've, uh, and that's what I like about you. You you have the experience, seems to be uh, working really well. I've sold my business, you know, I wish I spoke with you. Several years ago, uh, you know, unfortunately, we met afterwards. But uh, uh, definitely, a wealth of uh, you know content, a lot, lot of uh, personal experiences that you can share. So, so, what is the the number one question I get so often? And it's you know, I, I get into a business. So you look at a couple of things, right? It's it's what am I going to make? What's the set seller's description or the uh, the owner? I should say, what is the owner making? uh from everything right there's a the tax benefit there's the revenue there's the expenses and things like that um but but also the real wealth in my opinion is when you go out and sell that business and there's various multiples you can use and things like that so i always, i always tell the really quick story and we were talking right before the show when i bought my first franchise i was really nervous i was my mid 20s i'm signing the check which by the way i had to redo because i I, uh, where I put the dollar amount, I put it in the wrong section. You know, it was a big deal. It was the biggest check I ever wrote, Um, you know, even bigger than when we bought the down payment on our home. And uh, so I was really nervous. I did the check again. So the the franchisor shakes my hand and he goes, Do you have any questions? And he's probably expecting me to ask, Yeah, when can I start? When's training? And I go, How do I sell this thing? You know, and, and I said it jokingly, but that was really, you know, my, my, not my concern, but something that really, interest me because eventually I'm going to sell this and I, I want to factor that into, you know, selling it, maybe, you know, an additional investment and that kind of thing. So, uh, and that's a question I get from, from candidates all the time. We're looking at a franchise business. Um, you know, I'm looking to make X amount and they forget about that, that sale. So if you can walk us through, maybe just, you know, and we're going to spend most of the show and just on exit strategies, as far as how to approach it, does it make a difference if it's a, you know, a, a business worth, uh, or I should say a business netting a, a you know an owner maybe a hundred grand on a million versus uh, you know they're doing a lot more in volume. Does that affect the multiples? If you could just sure. talk a little bit more about that.
2: yeah, so you know I, I think first of all, just to build upon the story that you just shared, um, I think that people who invest in a franchise are actually in a better position to get mentally through this exercise than people who might start a business. Okay. A lot of people who start a business they they need an income right? And, and we, we've heard that expression, necessity is a mother of invention. So they, they get into something, they start earning money, they're concerned about what they're doing today. And, and once they get that lifestyle going where they're making enough money, then they kind of breathe a little sigh of relief. And it's only later when they have more time to think that they start to think about this exit. When someone's buying a franchise, whether an existing location or investing in a brand new location, you are writing a big check, as you described, mm-hmm. Giuseppe, And so, you know, you're making an investment in some kind of asset like buying a house, for example. Right. And so I think it's easier to get your head around the idea that this is an investment I'm making. And I know what does it look like when the day comes when I want to sell it again? You know, stocks on the stock market is easy. You call the broker to buy one, you call the same broker to sell it, or you do it online or what have you. With franchises, it's a little more difficult because while you're investing in a business that you're going to own and run. You're also in a relationship with that franchisor who creates all of these additional rules that you have to live within that other independent businesses don't have. And so a lot of the times when you're when you're making that decision to invest in a franchise, you want to talk to the franchisor about how do you sell it? Because I've found in my experience, the franchisors fall into two different categories. The, the franchisors that have an exit program already built and established These tend to be the older franchise names that have had a lot of units that began to be faced with the issue of people wanting to exit and how they, how are they going to manage these new buyers coming in? They have to ask themselves, are we going to have a different process for resales versus new sales, right? There's all kinds of things that go on over at the franchisor's office about how they're managing the growth of the network and all this kind of stuff. And so some of the newer franchise brands they may not have an established process set up. And so you want to you ask about that. You want to make sure that you understand. Hmm. And as far as running the business, um, here are some of the things I've seen over the course of time. Sometimes franchisors will provide different kinds of systems or operating tools to help people run their business. And you know, franchisors are going to come. They're going to do inspections. They're going to make sure that you're operating properly. They don't always necessarily make sure that you're following every sort of um, aspect of their system totally and completely. So they could provide you with some kind of management tool to help you run the financial side of the business, for example. And if you don't quite follow that to the T, they're not maybe they don't notice. They're more concerned about how you deal with customers or the quality of the work that's being done, depending on what the system is. But. If somebody comes into to that franchise system looking to acquire an existing location and they've gotten information from the franchisor and they maybe have already seen the operations manual and they've seen all this stuff, mm-hmm. when they come and meet you as a potential acquisition target and you're not following all the different things that they've been shown already, it can actually be a concern to that buyer because they're looking for all of the value that comes from operating within the systems of the franchisor, right? And, you know, the other thing that has surprised me over the course of time is the fact that some franchises out there who are big, well-known names. I've got a buddy of mine who's a franchisee, and I'm not going to use the name of his franchisee, but when people say franchise, they often think of this name. This franchisor provides systems and processes for absolutely everything Mm -hmm. except bookkeeping. And so you've got different franchisees across the country some are on Sage, some are on QuickBooks. Some of them own multiple locations or using a fancier accounting package that's more suitable to them. And when they get together at their annual meetings, they're trying to compare notes with each other, but there's a lack of standardized reporting in their businesses. Now, they all make the product exactly the same. There are, you know, no question about that, and they all are participating in the same advertising. But there are certain things that some of the franchisees themselves even wish that they were having some sort of system imposed upon them, so it's 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 kind of interesting the different things I've seen over the course of time.
1: Yeah, that 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 is interesting. And uh, to that point, yeah, it, it is typically in the franchisor's best interest because typically, I would say nine out of ten, if if not more times, there the franchisor is getting a percentage of gross revenue. Some some charge uh, tier pricing, a flat amount every month uh, depending on volume. So that is interesting, and that's the, and these are important questions to ask when you're doing your your due diligence. Um, you know, I, I will say too. With um, you know, every franchise does things differently, and these are, as you mentioned to your point, absolutely. That's that's part of the due diligence. Uh, what is your process? In many cases, the uh, franchisor. Um, you know, I, I am a franchise advisor, coach, and consultant. You know, they all mean pretty much the same. Everyone has d- different terms for what we do, but uh, they may use a um, you know a company like you know you know basically the, the service that we offer to help uh, find buyers for, for that business. And they, they'll tell you, okay, the, the fee is going to be X amount to sell. And then there's a transfer fee because the franchisor, you know, at the same time wants to meet that buyer. They want to make mm-hmm. sure that they're a, a good fit. And it's usually not a, a huge issue, but they they just don't want you just selling to anyone. They want to make sure that, um, you know, to your point, that they're following that system. So when they are doing their due diligence, absolutely, they're going to speak um, directly to the franchisor and to the franchisee, and if there's a disconnect there, that needs to be rectified uh really quick because if you're buying a franchise, the value's in the system, so if you 're not following it you're not getting the value proposition, and maybe that's why you didn't succeed, maybe particularly with that with that business so just just my two cents on that well and and you asked a question when we started off here about
2: multiples about how a business yes. is priced mm-hmm. and so um So here's another question that new franchise owners may want to have answered for them. And it may not be the franchisor who's going to answer this question for you. You might want to talk to somebody else, Mm -hmm. like a a business broker or someone like myself. Um, Every different industry is going to have a different multiple. So let me explain this briefly. Businesses that are already operating are valued based on the cash flow they produce and the amount of risk that buyers perceive in that industry. Mm -hmm. So a food service business is going to have a lower multiple than some kind of industrial service business to business type of business, because that industrial services business is going to be seen as less risky than a retail food restaurant. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so different industries have different multiples. And as the business size changes, the multiples change as well. So smaller businesses have lower multiples than bigger businesses in the same industry. Because they're, the bigger it gets, they're seen as less risky. So your corner sandwich, uh, submarine sandwich franchise that does a few hundred thousand in sales that earns six figures for the owner is going to have a certain multiple. But in the same industry, food service, you can have a big sit down franchise that does 2 million in sales that earns its owners, you know, 250,000 a year it's it's not the same multiplier that's going to be applied to that bigger business. They're actually going to get a higher factor when they multiply that 250,000 because that bigger business is going to be less susceptible to the negative impacts of losing a certain customer or or you know you can, <clears throat> you can just imagine if you decide you're never going to go back to Dunkin Donuts ever again, they won't notice, right? Right? But if you if you are going every week to the little corner um, sandwich shop on the end of the block and you're buying lunch there every week and you don't notice, well, on a hundred or two hundred or three hundred thousand dollars of revenue, your five hundred bucks over the course of the year will be noticed, mm-hmm. right? It it adds up to something, and so this is why smaller businesses trade for lower multiples. They're seen as being more risky now. I didn't know that.
1: that. Not to interject. But yeah, that's that's interesting. That's I've never had it explained to me that way. So very very interesting. Learning yeah, learning I, every day.
2: <laughs> well, it, it you know, these multiples are not made up by people. Right. They are discovered through the the transactions. Just mm-hmm. like residential home prices are set by the fact that, you know, someone two blocks over bought a house similar to yours for a certain price. That affects the price of your business. When, when we're looking at this, what we're doing is we're looking at past transactions mm-hmm. for businesses in the same industry for the same revenue category. Right. So the same size of business. And then we'll we'll see what other people paid. And that's the reflection of the risk that those buyers saw, which likely is gonna hold out for the next person in the next transaction. So, So here's the question though, is now that I've gotten all that multiplier stuff out of the way, is if I'm going to buy a brand new franchise, the price I'm gonna be paying is based on the franchise fees, training fees, and the building out of the new business, acquiring equipment, whatever it happens to be. So I have to make this investment to make myself ready to serve customer number one. Once the business is operating, no one really is gonna care what I paid. Right. Because now that it's an operating business, everyone's gonna say, what's the cash flow and what's the multiplier? Mm -hmm. And so the, the the question that I think a lot of franchise investors should be asking is what level of profitability will my unit have to have in order for me to be able to sell it for what I paid? And, and so this is an important kind of consideration because um, you could very well invest a million dollars in a brand new franchise business, mm-hmm. get it up and running, start making yourself some money, but you're not making enough for anyone to pay what you paid. And so the resale value of that unit is going to be lower. And you know, sometimes people will get into trouble where they'll open up a new location and they they won't make as much money as they want and they'll say, "Oh, this is maybe this isn't for me. I'm not operating or executing properly or or what have you. I'm going to sell and get out." And then they're very rudely shocked by this kind of reality because that unit now is not going to be bought based on the projections and opportunities and everything that franchisors might be presenting to people. It's going to be presented, it's going to be bought based on what you've actually done. And so sometimes if things aren't going well, we have to figure out how can we fix this business before you can exit. Because not only do we have to get the numbers up, we then have to get the numbers up and show that the numbers are sustainable. Right. Typically, that means two years of results. And so operating the business, having good profitability franchises, you know, you you said how franchisors are typically taking a royalty based on sales. Mm-hmm. What that means is that a lot of franchise systems will have a good degree of automation and, and systematization in the POS part. Yes. Maybe not in the back end bookkeeping. Mm-hmm. But what you want to do as a franchise owner is you want to try to run the business cleanly. Don't put a bunch of personal expenses in there to try to save on taxes It's just going to create headaches for you when you try to sell. You may be able to convince a buyer that, you know, your spouse's fuel expenses and your teenage daughter's cell phone bill aren't really business expenses. The problem then is the buyer convincing his banker that there's a departure from the tax returns. Good point. So that they can get a loan to buy your business. And, And that's really... When you sell a business, it's not just the, the buyer you have to convince; it's all of the people surrounding that buyer: their attorney, their CPA, their banker, and any other advisor that they
1: they bring in on the deal. Yeah, no, that's that's a, that's a very good point, and I I hear that quite often. Um, you know, what do you what do you say? So, came across a situation where um, this one particular company was a, a small mom and pop. Um, you know, they were they were purchased, but purchased by an investor who was purchasing multiple concepts. Um, we'll we'll just say for just to make up an example in the mosquito spraying space. I want to keep everything confidential. So, uh, one company acquired um, five or six companies, put them all under under one umbrella. Uh, comment comment I heard, which was this is all new to me, and and uh, I think we had this uh, mentioned this before the uh, the show was. Okay, this this one uh, uh, this one company paid two and a half times earnings, and his goal was to uh, acquire six to t- six to ten of these smaller companies, put them together, and sell at a higher multiple because he was getting into the four to five million dollar range.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, obviously, he's going to be making more total. Maybe the percent is still whatever it is, twenty percent, thirty percent, whatever the numbers were. But is that the case? once you hit certain um revenue numbers your multiples start to go up uh, up as well
2: it is it's a great question and this is something that that catches and confuses business owners all the time so remember earlier how i said two businesses in the same industry one is bigger earns more will sell for a higher multiple right so don't forget it's it's the multiple is applied to the cash flow so As the business gets bigger, Mm -hmm. um, and in in this case, we call it a roll up. So he was buying five or six businesses to assemble them together to make a larger entity. So he's de-risking because now he's got all of this huge customer base across five or six former businesses are all pooled together into one. And so someone's going to see that cash flow as being more stable. Mm -hmm. A lot of entrepreneurs get caught in the trap of thinking that it's all about the revenue doubling the revenue is going to double the value of the business no you you have to increase the cash flow and then when you go to sell it that multiple of cash flow might be a higher number but the the trap that i've seen so many people fall into is that they want to grow the revenue and they start adding unprofitable business they start adding doing a lot of sales promotions adding a lot of customers at a low price because they think that if they can get their total revenue up to a certain level, this is then going to be the thing that really drives them. I looked at a business two days ago with someone in New Jersey, $3.2 million in revenue and barely any profit. Wow. And the question is, what's it worth? And, and the answer then is, well, what does a buyer think they can do with it? Right. And are they going to need to use their resources to fix this business? How much are they really going to be willing to give to a seller? Right. because you're basically selling a business with no cash flow to pay any debt service or anything. So, so what is it worth? And this is why operating it is such a key thing. And within franchise systems, um, you know that's what people are buying into. They're buying into a proven methodology mm-hmm. for running a business that's supposed to be able to deliver a profit. And so you want to be focused on that bottom line, making sure that you get the right gross margins, and that you execute, so you have that profitability, so that there's something to multiply. Right. Yeah. Very
1: well said. Yeah that 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 explain, that that answers and the way you explained it, as I mentioned, I, I'm just going to be uh, sending people over to this episode. And um, actually, b- before I even forget to, uh, if you go to the uh, the website or it's or franchise freedom, you can go to what is it on iTunes, uh, Spotify, you name it, Google Podcasts. It's episode twenty-two. Um, I think it was back in. I believe we recorded back uh, back in May of last year. So it's been a, it's wow almost a year now. So you could take a look and it goes through a little bit more. We, we cover some other topics, but um, this has been great. I'm, I'm definitely going to be going back to this episode. Um, one other question, and then I, I know there was some some other talking points because the, the whole show today is dedicated to exit strategy. So
2: mm-hmm.
1: I I recently sold uh, sold my business about a year ago. And one thing I did not know, uh, the individual, um, I was actually was dealing with different buyers, I listed it, I I was doing a lot of it myself, was the valuation was all over the map. Uh, The multiples, what was true profit, because I had two types of buyers, which, you know, Owning my my first business 100 percent and selling it to find out okay you have one type of buyer that was just going to step into my shoes I was a, a semi uh, absentee operator I, I worked the business um, you know 10 15 hours a week I had a general not not even actually I was I was working less than that but I had a general manager in place and then you had um, so they wanted to step into I, I take that back they wanted to step into the general manager's shoes and take mm-hmm. over that role uh, that um, that role and others came in looking at it. As an investment, and they were offering me a much higher multiple, saying they just want to walk in, and they were offering me five, six, seven multiple, but on the 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 net profit, I have a, different after paying, right? I have a different number, paying right of a different number of a lower yeah. number. <laughs> so it was like, wait a second, we're we're all over the map. So I'm getting this higher multiple because these the business was on autopilot, but they were taking out. They're looking at the profitability after paying my general manager. So. What do you what do you do in that case? I mean, when you yeah. when you go to list a business, what's your intention to sell it when you have two different types of buyers? So, so the the idea, and when you
2: if you when you work with a qualified business broker, and I use the Q word in a very big way, and I'm gonna emphasize it qualified business broker, because a lot of people in the space and vast degrees of difference in expertise and experience. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you find a qualified business broker who you have confidence in, who's got references to check out, and, right. and and you you know that they're going to be able to do things. They're part of different associations, and and you ask to see samples of their work. Mm-hmm. And they're going to help you prepare the business for sale. And when you prepare the business for sale, we create something called the package. Sometimes it's called a confidential business profile. Sometimes it's a confidential information memorandum. There's different terms for it, but it's a bundle of stuff that a buyer is able to look at. And so, a properly prepared package is going to have two different kinds of buyers in mind. It's going to have what we call the financial buyer, who is a person who wants to replace their income. So, this would be the example, uh, Giuseppe, of the buyer who wanted to take over the general manager's job. They're going to put 40, 50 hours a week into running this business. They're going to be the day to day manager and the owner that person is gonna be looking at this seller's discretionary earnings. They're gonna say, if I buy this business, how much money do I get? Even though they're working full-time in order to get that money. So somebody who's looking at that, they're looking at multiples of seller's discretionary earnings, sometimes called SDE, Mm -hmm. sometimes called SDO. There's again, different terms for this. Those multiple numbers tend to be lower. So they're, they're multiplying a number that includes their own labor And so the number they multiply that with is lower. The other kind of buyer is called a strategic buyer. And they are looking at this as more of a passive investment. They need someone else to run the business for them. They need a manager. So instead of that seller's discretionary earnings level of income, they're looking typically at what we might call normalized EBITDA, Mm -hmm. which is earnings before interest taxes, depreciation, and amortization. It's not a true figure of cash flow but the reason why people like to use that number is because it makes it so you can compare one business against the other more readily okay uh-huh. because every business really has to pay interest and in taxes and they have to pay to replace equipment so it's not really the true cash flow to the owner okay but they'll look at that EBITDA number because a manager has been paid and they'll multiply that number and they'll multiply it by a different kind of factor mm-hmm. this is where business owners really get trapped here's here's what i mean is there'll be some place like a golf course or a yacht club or some place where they're talking with other business owners who will then start to talk about how Joe over there sold his business and got seven and a half times for his business. Right. And then you'll meet with a business broker who says that small service industries with little in the way of capital equipment sell for 1.7 to 2.2 times SDE. Mm-hmm. And you go, well, Joe got seven and a half times for his business. How come I'm getting 2.2? The difference is, is that Joe's business is a bigger business and it was sold not for a multiple of SDE or EBITDA. It turns out Joe had a trucking business and it was sold for a multiple of EBIT because the depreciation and amortization won't be added back in that scenario because the depreciation on capital equipment right. is such a big part of the trucking business. Right. And, and so this, this is why um, people get into trouble because they end up hearing these different things out of context mm-hmm. and they start to apply some of the things they hear in the wrong set of numbers within their own company or their own books. And the, the fatal flaw that happens is people end up with an inflated expectation. They, they begin to think that their business is a million dollar business when it might right. be a $350,000 business. And the scariest thing there is, is that if you go out into the market with that kind of overinflated, overinflated expectation, you don't actually ever meet the person who's going to buy your business because people that are buying an existing business, they spend some time, they educate themselves. They watch videos that I've got on YouTube and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. They have an idea what the business should be selling for. And if they see a price is double that, they go, that guy doesn't know what he's doing. They don't go over and talk to you. The people who do talk to you are other people who don't know what they're doing. You may even sign a deal. That guy will go to the bank. The banker will tell him why it doesn't work. And then the deal falls apart. And then a year later, you begrudgingly realize, oh, my goodness, it's not a million-dollar business. It's not worth anywhere close to that amount. But now a year has gone by. And let's let's talk about why people sell businesses. The top reasons people sell businesses are because of burnout and fatigue, divorce, poor health, the need to relocate, or retirement. Right. And so if you run into one of these circumstances – you begin to start to be distracted and this means that your entire focus and attention is no longer on the business so if you spend a year with the distraction in place while you're trying to sell the business what then happens is the performance starts to erode Mm -hmm. and now you get another set of financial statements and oh oh, these statements uh... (laughs) show a decline in sales and profitability and now you've got a your your trend has changed Mm -hmm. And now people don't want to average your last three years of performance. They just want to look at the most recent year because now you have a downtrend. And so when the decision comes that now I need to sell, you need to get everything put together quickly so that you're ready to handle buyers in an expedient fashion. You need to have a realistic understanding of what it's worth because you need to sell it before your own lack of interest starts to have an impact on the results. That's, that's key. Did did you get into that kind of feeling when you were looking at selling your business, Casepi?
1: Uh Yeah. I mean, the, the situation, I originally had it listed with a broker and we had it priced way too high and uh, it was frustrating. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I just, you had one expectation to, to your point, a lot of misinformation. I am, I am the first to agree there. I was confused, talked to other brokers. You should get three times, you should get one and a half times. It was all over the map to the point where it was a distraction and it did affect my business 100%. You know, I'm honest. I, I wish I could say I, it didn't, but it did. So it affected my business, affected my, my morale. And until I um, spoke with a few people, decided to do it on my own and um, got some, you know, being in the business we're in, we, there's a lot of buyers always constantly contacting us. So we were able mm-hmm. to find a buyer. So, uh, but yes, it, it, it did uh, hurt morale, did hurt business. Uh, I'm sure it hurt the valuation of the business.
2: Yeah. And, and you know, what happened in your circumstance, you you tried brokers, then you went and did it on your own. In the world of small business transactions, uh, close. there's no hard numbers on this, okay? Mm-hmm. Nobody really tracks the market. And here's why. Most small businesses are sold in what's called an asset sale. Mm-hmm. So somebody registers, you know, for example, in New Jersey, someone would register a brand new LLC to be the buyer. And then they buy the assets of an existing business. And then that seller might wind up their LLC. Well, over at the government, they record it as a business startup and a business closure. They they don't really record it as a sale of an operating business. And so this is why the numbers aren't, aren't very transparent for small businesses. Uh, So uh, it's as many as 80% of businesses are, are sold without any kind of intermediary at all. And so, you know, here's an example of how this can happen with, within a franchise network. If you own a franchise and you decide it's time for me to sell, chances are if there's someone in your network who's trying to grow, they might be your buyer, right? Your, your neighboring territory owner or someone yes. within a reasonable distance. Um, the other example would be that if you have uh, a franchise that's well established and all the territories are bought up, there could be some guy three miles from you who contacts a franchisor looking to buy a franchise who's told, no, I'm sorry, the state sold out. Well, if the franchisor knows you're looking for an exit, they might direct that person to you. So there could be an opportunity for you to find a buyer through the franchise or simply because, you know, this person made an inquiry on a new unit and they can't help the yes. person if they, if they don't want to move.
1: Do you want to talk about some horror stories? Well, before that, and yeah, I, I yeah. want to say, yeah, we could definitely talk about that. I We can, um, I will say, yes, I, I, sometimes I get calls. Uh, we find the, a, a franchise that's a perfect match. They want, well, all of Northern New Jersey, which happens to be three, three franchisees, three territories, three locations, whatever, whatever the case may be. And none of them are for sale. None of them are listed. The franchise or may just make that quick phone call and say, Hey, we have a, a buyer that's looking to buy the whole region. Is anyone interested? And, uh, mm-hmm. we've had, um, we've had interest started that way. N- nothing listed maybe it wasn't even a thought and uh, all of a sudden there are <laughs> poten- potential three locations for sale. So um, yeah, I mean, har- horror stories, sure. Let's uh, let's keep it interesting.
2: <laughs> all right. Well, in the, in, the, in the interest of full disclosure, here are some of the situations that, uh, that I've run into when I was a business broker uh, trying to help people sell their franchise businesses. So uh, the first one is the bait and switch. So the franchisee hires a broker or does it on their own. They go out looking for a buyer and they find a buyer and they meet the buyer and the buyer likes the business. And then as part of the purchase process, of course, the buyer then has to be approved by the franchisor. Mm -hmm. And so this, this happened to me a couple of times in a franchise network that did not have a resale program specifically. What would happen is the the, the seller of the, fran- the franchisee would introduce the buyer to the franchise head office okay. and it would be handed to the people who are the same people who would sell new units. Mm-hmm. And they would say, we're going to take an application from this guy to see if he's qualified. And the salespeople trying to meet quota for selling new territories would say, you sure you want that old unit? I could set oh, you up wow. in a brand new place downstate, you know, and you'd have a brand fresh new. And so this franchisee lost a couple of buyers because the franchisor sold them
1: into new units. I'm surprised they didn't have him sign a, uh, you know, a non-disclosure or, or, or something. I would, I, and you know what? I, I'm not even sure if that exists, but you would think that, w- that would apply in that case.
2: Well, and this is why it's you shame. want to
1: have an understanding right
2: of what the process is with the franchisor, because the, wow. in this case, it was the person in charge of selling new territories that was handling this process. They probably had some kind of quota or, or goal sure. they were trying to meet. And, and that leads me directly into the second one. So this is another case. Again, this was a franchise that I had for sale. There were two units, very successful operator. Okay. This guy was always in the top tier performer amongst the franchisees. And he was often held out as a superstar at meetings and regional meetings, all this kind of thing. In fact, um, he was very good, and when they would have somebody fail, sometimes in a franchise network, you, you in restaurants, for example, you could spend a lot of money building a whole new restaurant, and then if you make a go of it, what then happens? Well, if, if, if you're failing and you're on the way out, the franchisor would like to try and save the investment made in building that location. They're going to try to find someone that's going to keep those doors open because the franchisors collect a royalty on sales. So they would offer failing locations in the region to this guy for free, basically. They would say, you're such a good operator. We have somebody who's closing, you know, an hour and a half away from you. Would you like an opportunity to have that place? We'll make it happen because we know you can operate it. And he would say no, because he knew that boots on the ground were a key to his success. Mm -hmm. He needed to be there. So when he decided to sell... Um I sold that I sold that business 3 times. So wow. on three different occasions we had a buyer who would come forth, they would negotiate with the seller, an agreement would be made, then mm-hmm. the buy, the fran- potential buyer would make an application with the franchisor and be rejected. And so after that happened the second time, we got this idea, hey, you know what? maybe they don't think that these guys are good potential operators and they're, they're relying on the cash flow that you provide as a good operator. They don't want to lose you. Right. And so he had to have some stern words with head office and say like, you know, you need to approve the next buyer I bring or you're going to lose me anyway. Right. You know, at the end of my lease, at the end of our agreement, you know, I'm going to explore other options. And that no one knows for sure what was going on at head office, but that was the, the feeling everyone got Mm -hmm. is that they were trying to keep him in there because they wanted his success. They
1: wanted the, the royalty checks to keep flowing from his unit. Yeah, that, that, that's a shame. And, and you know what, with, with, with practices like that, that that uh, spreads quickly. So when you are, you know, I, I will say full disclosure: when you are looking at a franchise, the biggest part of anything you can do, we can look at the financials, we can speak with the the franchisor directly. I think the the meat of it the, of the due diligence is, is validation with the franchise existing franchisees, and mm-hmm. if something like that that that's going to spread really quickly because that's going to affect everyone, so people are going to be in an uproar. Uh, not all franchises are built the same and that's, and that's key. I said, I, I can, I can coach you through the whole process, making sure you, at, you, you ask the right questions, but um, that is something you you would come across relatively quickly. And that would be a major red flag, even, even for myself, if I'm looking at a franchise. So it's unfortunate you're dealing with people and, it, and that should not happen, but that's just bad, uh, bad practices from that uh, particular franchise company.
2: I agree with you fully. And I think that your yeah. solution is totally apropos. It's, you know, word gets around in every way. And sure. in a lot of places, franchisees become friends with each other. Mm-hmm. And yeah. this has got to be part of your due diligence is going out and meeting other unit holders and finding out, you know, how they feel about mm-hmm. the way things are run and how they're being treated by the people from head office.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and a lot of these concepts meet once a year. They'll have their national conference. I call it a it's almost like a mastermind because everyone because just because you're all in a painting franchise doesn't mean you come for that. Odds are you you never painted maybe a day in your life, so maybe you came you're an former accountant or you own the retail uh, you know a restaurant. So everyone is kind of figuring out best practices, what's working, how do we all work together so that maybe we we throw our money together in a pool and do an event and we split it up based off of territory. So some major advantages and and but you need to take you need to take uh, advantage of that. If you're not going to the meetings, you're not talking to the franchisees you're missing the whole value of the, of the franchise in, in and of itself. So uh, but, and that's, and that's a benefit. So when you are doing your due diligence, if you're getting a lot of red flags, that's a conversation I like to have with anyone I work with and, and with the franchise company, because I need to know where we stand. If there's that many issues, they need to get resolved or we move on and, and maybe we have to look elsewhere. So um, really, really good stuff. Um, you answer a lot of my questions because I, you know, I deal with this every single day and I am not I am not the expert. So, I guess a, a question for anyone listening in. So, traditionally, you know, what what I came across was need to sell a business, what do you do? You go to a broker. You know, you're not feeling well, you go to the doctor. So, um you would go to go to the broker and I felt and this is not a knock against brokers, but what I felt was okay, we're going to try to get as much as you can and they their compensation was typically the number I came across, 10%. It was At first it was, you can work with a couple brokers. Then it was, you can only work with one broker. It was 10%. Maybe if the the numbers were higher, it dropped to eight from the experience, from my personal experiences. I'm not speaking on behalf of all brokers. Um, You're saying, you know, from our conversations and knowing you, you're saying that your model, you completely reversed it. So if someone is uh, thinking of selling their business, they can hire someone like yourself, correct? And, and, and figure out the valuation, how to fix it, and then sh- and you show them how to sell their business. Yeah, so so basically, I've ripped off the business model of CPAs and
2: attorneys. So so what I do is I basically just have a menu of the steps and the services that go along with them. So um, when I'm working with a seller, I'll do the evaluation, then I'll create that package for the buyers, mm-hmm. and then if they need help to run the advertisements to bring in the the potential buyers, I'll do these things for them, and I'll charge them. Uh, for each step that I take them through, much like an attorney is just going to charge you for having some contracts made or whatnot. Right. And then at the end of the whole process, when the business is sold, there's no commission or anything. So th- the reason why it works is you know, when I was a business broker, I had to handle a lot of files that never sold. So right. I wasn't getting paid on some of the files I had, and I had to make my living from the files that sold. Under my current business plan. You know, what basically happens is everybody I work with ends up paying me for what I'm doing. And it means overall I can charge less. And, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of people like that process a little bit better.
1: Well, you're offering value, right? I mean, you're offering, there's the service of, you know, you're going to need a year before you can sell it. I'm going to coach you through how to, how do you, maybe the revenue is fine. Just your expenses is really low. How do we, how do we do that to show that, that uptrend? So there's, I, I see it as complete value because you're offering so much, coaching and advice and, and working directly with them.
2: You know, it's, it's, it's interesting that you bring that up because a lot of the times with business owners, what will happen is I'll do the first step, which is the evaluation mm-hmm. and they're disappointed with the number, right? And then I'll be able to go through and say, this is why the number is where it is. And if you're trying to get to this other number, here are the changes that have to occur. And then they'll go work on their business and then come back after another set or another two sets of financial statements have come back. And then we can, it's very easy once it's been done the first time to then rework the new numbers into it, <clears throat> show what the progress has delivered, mm-hmm. and then they can make the, the decision of whether they're gonna go to the market or not. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, but here's here's the thing is that requires foresight. right? And so as a business owner, it's imperative to keep in mind that this is an asset you have like a stock you might have in your portfolio there could come a time where I want to exit out of this. Mm -hmm. I need to have it in as good and shiny a condition as possible to make sure that when I want to sell it, it'll be sellable. Right. And unfortunately a lot of people get, get, um, get caught in a lifestyle groove where they're working every day. They're earning enough money. They're doing those little things to reduce their tax obligations means on paper the business doesn't quite look as good, but, hey, they're living, you know, high on the hog and they're doing well and they're happy. Then they get sideswiped by one of those things that we never foresee. And one of the other things that I've seen talked about quite often is, is people will talk about how the exit from your business is going to be like this huge thing. When we're talking about most small businesses, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, when he exits from Facebook, he's going to be you know, totally wealthy. There's no question. Mm-hmm. But for most small businesses, we're talking about relatively low multiples. The, the most common comment that people say to me when I do an evaluation on their business is they'll say, well, if I just stayed for a few years, I'd have the same money. And I go, yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. It rarely makes sense to sell a good profitable business. The the profits you enjoy as the owner of that business, that is where you're going to build and create your wealth. You need to make sure your business is profitable every day so you can take money out of the business, invest in other things. Business is risky. We don't know what's going to happen to affect your market, government rules, global pandemic. Who knows, right? Sure. So make money every day. And then, when you can't run the business anymore, we do the best we can to get as much as we can in the shortest order of time, so that you can exit before your own changes in attitude and opinions start to affect the business.
1: Right? Yeah. And we had, uh, without getting into details, I know we're coming, uh, coming up here at close to one o'clock. Um, I had sent over a good friend of mine that you had spoke with, and sometimes the, as you mentioned, how you bit, how you build wealth, and Um, This particular person was still, you know, kind of building his legacy for his family. Um, Sometimes it doesn't make sense to sell. The numbers are there, but why not take advantage of taking off the profits, taking out the profits? Maybe it's less. Maybe it's half of what he was making and having that general manager run the business for them. You know, they have an asset that this this thing is just making money hand over fist. Why? Why sell it? Uh, when there's so much potential when you can have someone run it and you can take the profit. So sometimes, uh, you know, the benefit to you, obviously, you know, with the broker, obviously they want to sell the business with you. They can uh, go a completely different route, pay for the service that you offer that's worth, you know, tenfold, um, you know, based off of, you know, having having them lower the expense, maybe showing them a different avenue instead of selling. So I see complete benefit. Um, so, so I guess the last thing would, would be, how and when uh, do, uh, do people get uh, get in touch with you? So if they are thinking about it, do they do they go to your site and and are there videos or they contact you or email you directly? Yeah. <clears throat> Anyone who wants to learn more about what it's going to be like when they go to sell their
2: business. Um, I have a book actually, Giuseppe <clears throat>, that I wrote called How to Sell My Own Business. Mm-hmm. And it's on Amazon. It's on audio as well. But... Um, uh, you know, if you come over to my website, davidcbarnett.com, there are videos and I have a YouTube channel as well. It's probably close to 100 videos in the sell a small business playlist. And so all that stuff is on there. It's all for free. Mm-hmm. Help yourself absorb the information. And when you're ready to, you know, have some ink on paper and you want to really know where you stand and stuff, just reach out to me. And I'm more than happy to help you out.
1: Or they can just watch, re- rewatch this podcast. wealth. <laughs> <laughs> I I will I will tell you this you don't you don't learn this in school you you touch on some of the topics but I have learned more um, not from my own show from watching other people's shows and it's it's truly a wealth of information and it's free you know so that's the beauty so well David I, I appreciate it. so what what is your website
2: it's uh, David C Barnett com is my blog site it's kind of like the central place where you can find out everything that uh, that I've got going on. And, um, and you can find my contact information there too, if you want to reach out.
1: Awesome. Well, listen, a pleasure. As I mentioned, you're the, uh, first guest to be on twice and, um, learn a lot every time we speak. I, I appreciate your time. I know your time is valuable and I will, uh, you know, we'll get this show out and I will be using this show as my masterclass on, uh, on exit strategy. So I appreciate it once again. <laughs>
2: No problem, Giuseppe. Thank you, and uh, and we'll see you later. Thanks
0: again. Take care. Thanks for tuning in. Whenever you're ready, here are three ways Giuseppe can help. One, if you've ever considered owning a business of any kind, you owe it to yourself to get a copy of Giuseppe's book, Franchise Freedom. Download your free copy at ggthefranchiseguide.com slash book. Two, want to understand how successful executives make the transition from corporate to owning their own franchise? Join Giuseppe's next online presentation, Franchise Freedom, How to Escape the Corporate World and Have Financial and Time Freedom by Owning a Franchise by going to ggthefranchiseguide.com slash video. Three, want to work with Giuseppe one-on-one to identify the right franchise opportunity for you to navigate the process and get plugged into experienced franchising advisors? Send him an email to gg at ggthefranchiseguide.com with one-on-one in the subject and he'll send you all the details